Thank you for listening to this teaching from the prayer room. For more teachings, notes, downloads, or to subscribe to our podcast, as well as information about who we are and our upcoming events, visit our website at tprdfw.com. Father, we ask you tonight in the name of Jesus to release anointing and clarity on the Word of God. That as we read through pieces of revelation and as we discuss the subject of the great city above, I pray that you would give us increased understanding. Father, touch our spirits and awaken uh, and illuminate revelation in Jesus' name. Amen. Book of Revelation, session 105, description of the holy city. Now, we're going to split up the conversation about the uh, New Jerusalem between this week and next week, and we'll cover some other details in the uh, future sessions as well, but this session and the next session that we're going to do on this uh, subject are, are going to be about the, the holy city, about New Jerusalem. There's too much to cover in one session, so I'm breaking it up. Tonight, we're going to do kind of an overall general description. And then in the next session, we're going to talk about navigating some more of the nuances uh, of, of the city. And so uh, one of the details that I want to point out that is just so interesting, it's an intriguing idea. If it's one that you're not used to, if it's one that you're like, I think I've read that verse before, but it never really struck me. We're going to talk tonight about the correlation, the connection rather, between the city, New Jerusalem, and the bride of Christ, because there's some interesting overlap. There's a little bit of mystery there. First of all, John is permitted to see some incredible things related to the city of heaven. And uh, I mean, great details. If you're wondering kind of the core passage in the book of Revelation, uh, you could be looking at Revelation 21 and 22, and that would get you a, a good start. Um, the city is beautiful. Of course, it's God's city. And that's kind of really the focus uh, that I want us to think about is that this isn't just a city. This is the one that God designed for himself to live in. This is the one that he would make uh, a bit synonymous with himself because you can't think about the city of heaven as it truly is, not as maybe others have myth that, uh, made a, a mythical version or as other religions have defined a different version, nirvana or whatever. But in the true sense of the city of heaven, you can't think of heaven and not think of God. This is his city. And the city is beautiful. And that's really the focal point uh, just for this entry I want to give us. Revelation 21, uh, verse 11, it's shown, the city, shown with the glory of God. And its brilliance was like that of a precious jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. Psalm 96 says, for all the gods of the nations are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and glory are in his sanctuary. <clears throat> so strength, glory, the beauty, the splendor, the majesty. This is the description of heaven. Psalm 48 says, Great is the Lord and most worthy of praise in the city of our God. The city of heaven. In the city of our God. His holy mountain. It is beautiful in its loftiness. The joy of the whole earth. Like the utmost heights of Zephon is Mount Zion. The great city of the great king. Or the city of the great king. Um, we've also got here an uh, interesting passage in Exodus. Moses and Aaron 
Nadab and Abihu, and the 70 elders of Israel went up and they saw the God of Israel, and under his feet was something like a pavement made of sapphire, clear as the sky itself. So they're, they're having this, this interconnected visionary experience where they're seeing into heaven and they're seeing God having where, where his feet are and they're looking at the pavement under his feet and their description is, it was like made of sapphire, it was clear as the sky, it was beautiful. These are descriptions of heaven. We're getting descriptions of how beautiful it is. And then of course we've got uh, this passage in uh, Revelation 4, which is the, the first introduction to the city of heaven in the book of Revelation with any sort of detail. John is told, come up here. So now John is being invited up to heaven. Come up to heaven. And now John gets to see some stuff and he looks around and he says, there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. A rainbow resembling an emerald encircled the throne. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones and seated on them were the 24 elders. They were dressed in white, and they had crowns of gold on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings, and peals of thunder. Before the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. Also, before the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. That sea of glass, clear as crystal, seems to be what we were looking at in Ezekiel. I'm sorry, in uh, Exodus, in the passage when the elders and, and uh, Nadab and Abihu and Aaron, they were looking and they were seeing into heaven and under the, pa- under the feet of God were the, was this pavement that was described as being as clear as the sky itself. Here they're seeing this sea of glass clear as crystal. The city is beautiful. Beautiful beyond measure, beyond reason. We are going to be discovering what it truly means, what the word beautiful means. When we see the city of God, we will be enthralled. We'll have no basis of comparison. The most beautiful sky, uh, you know, scape that we've ever seen. The most beautiful field or valley. The most beautiful architecture. Anything we've ever seen will pale by comparison to the weakest expressions of beauty of this city. My point, the city of heaven is described as beautiful. Next point. Let's go to part B. The bride, the bride of Christ. The church. <clears throat> the bride of Christ is beautiful. Everywhere we see the bride of Christ described in the word, whether we're reading uh, the, the whispers that were given in the book of Song of Solomon, or we see what's written in Ephesians as Paul is going on about the church, or we see what's written in Revelation, the, the bride, whenever the church is described in her bridal identity, because we know that the church is also the body of Christ. We know that the church is the... the uh, Um, the household of God, the church is the priesthood. But when the church is described in her bridal identity, she's described as beautiful. Look here in uh, Ephesians 5. Look for the language that describes uh, radiance, purity, beauty. Ephesians 5.25, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing of with water through the word to present to her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any blemish, but holy and blameless. Just the picture of holiness being described is so beautiful. 
Then Revelation 19 says, The wedding of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given to her to wear. Both of these passages describe to us the bride of Christ being made beautiful for Jesus, being made beautiful of her own initiative, being made beautiful by the Lord himself in order that she would be beautiful and presented to Jesus as a radiant bride. Here's my point. The bride of Christ is described as beautiful. Well, let's connect the dots because Revelation chapter 21 throws us a curveball if you weren't ready for it. Revelation 21, 9 through 10, middle of the page on page 2. One of the seven angels that had the seven bowls of the last plagues came and said to me. So this is one of the angels that had the bowls of wrath, okay? High uh, authoritative angel. He, says, come to, uh, he said to me, come and I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. So we're expecting to see the church. And he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high and he showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Now, wait a minute. I thought the bride was the bride. How is the bride also a giant glory box? And this is part of the mystery that I just want to tell you, I don't think that we have all the understanding on right now. I, I certainly don't. But I want to connect some dots. I want to give us kind of thinking about some things here. Because in this passage... You just couldn't split it any other way. John is told by a high-ranking angel, come and I'm going to show you the bride. So John's like, cool, can't wait to see the church. And then the angel shows John the new Jerusalem. You just imagine John being a little bit puzzled. John's going, you said you were going to show me the bride. The angel goes, that's right. That's heaven. And the angel goes, uh-huh. I thought you said you were going to show me the bride. I am. Hmm, these things do not compute to me. So let me just give you a couple of ideas. Again, I don't have this fully developed. I, I hope that some wisdom comes out even in your discussion groups today. I just want to point it out and give you the little bit that I've got. One point, just as a, some frames of reference here, we've got the assurance that this city was made for the bride, okay? So it's almost like, think about this now. Think about if, if somebody said, hey, I'm gonna show you the Stroops. And you're expecting to see uh, my uh, beautiful mug and, uh, and my precious children and wife that makes me look really good. You're expecting to see our faces, but instead they pull up in front of our house and they show you the Stroops residence. There's a connection there between the house of the Stroops and the Stroops that live in the house, okay? My father's house has many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you, I am going to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you may also be where I am. Check that out. This is Jesus describing as the head carpenter He's describing heaven that was just in Revelation 21 called the bride. He says, I'm going to go prepare that city for you, 
because that's what that city is for. There's places in that city that are designated for you. I'm going to take you to go be there. If it were not so, I wouldn't tell you, but I'm going to go, I'm going to prepare you, and then I'm going to come back, and I'm going to get you to take you to be in that city because that city is yours. That city's actually prepared for you. So one component, the city doesn't exist outside of space and time. The city exists as the destination, the eternal dwelling for the people of God, specifically the bride of Christ. Next point. Revelation 3, 12. One of the eternal rewards that Jesus offers to the church, and now I'm going to say to the bride is that if we're victorious in the last days, we could be made an eternal, permanent fixture, a pillar in the temple region of heaven. Look at it. The one who's victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it. I will write on them the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem. So here we have very clearly that the bride could be made permanent pillars in the temple of the holy city if there is victor if there's victory at the end of the age for the believer and there's some other criteria here's my point there is an interconnectedness between the eternal home and residence the eternal dwelling of the bride of Christ in the city as an e as an eternal reality and so while I'm again I'm admitting to you I don't have much more clarity than this there is something to be said about this mystery of the, of the angel unflinchingly without explanation. Think about that. There's no explanation given as if it's so just understood. It's so concrete and inarguable. There is the bride. And it's the holy city descending out of uh, the, the heavens to the earth in this moment. That's a very interesting reality. Also, one more detail. When that descent occurs, John is actually seeing the period after the millennium, meaning the church has been living in that city for a thousand years. Okay? So when, when we're seeing Revelation 21, there is the bride. It's descending out of heaven to the earth. The very next thing is it says God comes and makes his home and is dwelling with us, which is a reality that happens after the thousand years. So when John is seeing the city, he's not just seeing it in its current state or at, in its state in whatever AD when John saw it. He was actually seeing it in his future state. Little did John know, John was seeing John. John was in that city as it's coming down. Okay, so, so there's a little bit of point of revelation. So anyway, I just want to throw that out there. I'm going to change gears now. I'll kind of take a hard turn here. I want to talk about heaven as concrete and full of stuff. One of the things that we're going to talk about in the coming weeks uh, in this series is we're going to talk about a number of the stuff, a number of the things that are very real that are inside that city. But what I want to do tonight is I just, uh, I want to get us started thinking about the concept of a real city. So pick, picture any city, whatever city, your family, you know, you grew up in, if that's here, if that's someplace else, picture whatever that city is, picture with the streets and your favorite, you know, little taco restaurant and, and you know, that one place of town that you probably don't go after dark and just think about the different aspects and how concrete it was, how many steps it was from your front door to the mailbox. Think about the concreteness, the reality of it. 
that a city is a city. A city isn't an ethereal floating reality that, you know, we're not really sure it'll just be good when we're up there. It's a city. Everything about the city of heaven is described as a city. So I want us to get thinking concrete ideas, okay? Walkable paths and distance and ideas and air quality and smells and, and sights and architecture and people living over there and they don't live both over there and over there. They, they, that's their house over there. And you know the way to their house. Concrete city realities, okay? Earth is patterned after heaven. Heaven came first. Earth is patterned after heaven. When I say patterned, really, it's only a shadow. In fact, heaven has way more reflection of all that is than earth does. Earth has a partial reflection of what exists. We don't have any living creatures down here, for instance, okay? We don't have them running around with armpits in their, or eyeballs in their armpits. We don't have those things down here. What we have on earth, we, we definitely have color, smell, ideas, concepts, you know, buildings, streets. We've got several things, many, I mean, millions of things that are reflections of heaven. But I want us to understand this. Heaven is more real than earth. Earth is patterned after heaven and has got the stain of sin on it. Heaven is more real than earth and is more vast in its, uh, in its scope and I'm just saying this, however many species of this or that we've got here, where did earth even get the idea to have such things? I just bet you that there are even more of whatever you can imagine upstairs than there are here. We are living in just a shadow of the reality. Now, why do I bring that up? Part B, these are just some things we're not going to really spend much time on. We've looked at all these things at one point or another a little bit, but it's not gonna, we're not going to spend much time on these things. I just want us to get thinking concrete. Here's some stuff listed in heaven. I didn't give you all of them. I just listed off a few of them that came to mind in a minute, okay? Lampstands. Lampstands are real tangible things. Thrones. They're thrones. You like sit on it. Hopefully there's a cushion. Thrones. Seats. Scrolls. The altar. Harps. Physical harps. Actual Worship instruments. Uh, then I listed up there some things that are very real, but they're not graspable. Thunder, light, music. And then I put on their horses. And I put on their horses because I want to expound on some concepts here. I want you to really pay attention to this next part. This is a very important uh, uh, connected thought process. Anytime you've got something listed in heaven, the very fact of that thing being listed means there are dozens of supporting realities to that one thing. So we're going we're gonna to do horses here in a minute, okay? You could do it on anything. I'm just going to throw out some ideas on horses because if there are horses, then that necessitates there's other things related to horses, okay? Here's the reason I'm bringing this up. Heaven is a real city with real stuff. So anytime you've identified something that the book of uh, Revelation or the Bible in general identifies as a real thing in heaven, we're not supposed to be picturing that thing as isolated and unrelated to the rest of the environment of heaven. 
they're all interconnected. So if you have this, then that means you've got this, 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 and this. These things are related, okay? For, just a, for instance, before I even go into this one, if you have streets, you have street signs. How does everybody know how to get around? And if there's not street signs, then there's some other cool equivalent that's even better, but not nothing, okay? But let's just talk about horses for a second, because that's one that uh, we're not going to spend any time on in the future sessions, so I just want to kind of unpack it. If heaven has horses, it means it's got stables. If heaven has stables, it means it has lumber. Lumber means trees. Horses means oats. They got to eat something. But as soon as you got oats, now you got oat fields. Oat fields means tractors or something. If heaven has a cooler version of tractor, or if heaven's going old school on the farming tools, but a field of oats must be gleaned somehow, must be harvested somehow, meaning there's tools related to that process. Fields also means distribution systems. Think about what it takes to get a bunch of any product from one location to all the locations that it needs to get to. Now you've got distribution systems, but if you have distribution systems, you have jobs. Because that means there's people or angels or something that's doing stuff to get oats from that field to those horses. There's got to be a system at work, a transportation and maybe some refining, or maybe the oats are just so perfect they don't require any finding, refining, but there's still, you got to get them off of the, you know, the, the, the grains and the, the stalks. I mean, there's a process in place here. All you needed to do was say the word horse once. And now there's this elaborate reality that must also support that existence of that horse. This is the case for every single thing that we can concretely know about heaven. Because it's a city. There's life happening up there. We have dumbed heaven down to genie-blinking realities. Horse, no, that horse is, is full in the name of Jesus. It doesn't need to eat. All horses forever are full. They don't need to, they don't need to eat. No, no, where did... Tell me where we got that idea because we've got an entire natural process of which the Holy Spirit goes out of his way through the authors of the Bible to help us understand the natural processes of heaven, the fact of natural processes. We've just made a genie blink reality. We just imagined heaven isn't real. It's all magical. Everything happens so magically that there's no human process. Show me one Bible verse that says that. Because I can show you a ton that are saying the exact opposite, that there's order and there's, there's natural. The fact that we're told so many different dimensions, like details of measurements, are helping us to understand the distance between that and that. It's not just that they exist and that, that distance doesn't matter and gravity doesn't matter. No, all of these things are still at play. It's a real city with stuff happening. So I just want you to be thinking about that because as we investigate the city of heaven, the natural order is not suspended. It's very much operational, which is exciting. It's difficult for our spirit that God made and started on the earth. Like God got our start on the earth, okay? When you became you, 
It happened inside of your mom on planet Earth. That was the first time you became you. You are an earthling. You have tangible uh, uh, desires and thought processes. You are very used to a concrete, physical planet. God did that on purpose because you're going to relate to concrete, physical things forever. You don't just become floaty spirit and never have any interactions that you were used to as a human. Your version of humanity here isn't wholly broken. It's altered by sin, but it was right before sin. It was correct. It was, it was an operate. Gravity was part of non-sin. Gravity was here first. Like there are things, principles. Ooh, eat, sweet, taste it, love it. Ooh, eat, mm, not eating that again. There's all these different human realities that God created and said it was good. Let's not imagine heaven is devoid of reality. It's very real. All right, let's talk about the foundation stones of the city. I'm moving a little slower than I wanted to tonight. Every kind of stone. Check this out. Revelation 21, 19. The foundations of the city walls were decorated with every kind of precious stone. I just want to go out on a limb and say there are stones in the universe that are not on earth. And heaven is decorated with every kind of precious stone. Naming the specific stones. We're actually told uh, 12 specific stones. It doesn't say these are the only stones reflected in heaven. It says these stones are what the foundations are made of. Now that's different than the wall being decorated. Okay? These walls are really big. Plenty of room for decor. But then we find out there's 12 stones that stand out, and we're told what they are. Well, I don't want to go into it uh, too much, but it just so happens they're the same 12 stones as what were on the, uh, the breastplate of the high priest. They're the same 12 stones. So you got the 12 stones, almost like the high priest was just a copy. See, because what's happening down here is just a shadow of what is already upstairs. Uh, these 12 stones, though, the ones that are listed as the foundation stones, they're typically small and rare. But in this situation, God makes like a giant moon-sized city out of them. These stones, when you look at them in, in Earth's uh, perspective, these are rare, and they're small. You don't get a gemstone the size, size of this stage, but it says the city is like made out of these things. It's a really, really big city. These foundations are enormous, and it says they're made out of these stones. So God takes what was rare and precious and small in the earth, and he goes, oh, no, no, I, I got plenty of that up here. I have ample supply. I've been mining the universe. I know how to get all this stuff. Now, just classifying precious stones. There's two types of precious stones, at least as our whatever, geologists would, you know, uh, categorize them. One, and I'm sure I'm going to botch the, these a little bit. You can do your own homework. But one is isotropic stones, and those are ones that don't have a reflective quality. They can still be beautiful and rare, but they're not transparent, and they don't reflect light, okay? So just imagine, like, some, because I don't know all my stones, just imagine some really dark-colored stone that's opaque, that doesn't, you can't see through it or anything. And when you, when you got light on it, it doesn't reflect light and make it like, you know, like a diamond would. But then you've got, I guess it's called anisotropic? Anisotropic? I'm going to say anisotropic stones. 
anisotropic stones are other types of uh, of rare gems, other types of precious stones in the precious stone category. And these are ones that have the reflective quality, meaning that they're transparent, and when you shine light on them, you get like rainbow colors. You get like, you get, you can see through them to a degree. They reflect the light. They're just, they're really cool. It just so happens that all of the stones that are on the list of the ones that are the foundation stones, they're all this second category. They're all the ones that uh, that uh, have uh, the translucence to them. They reflect the colors. Why do I bring that point up? The fact that God chose those kinds of stones adds an entirely new dimension to the city of heaven. He could have chosen some of the opaque ones. He didn't. All the ones that the foundations are made out of, all of them are transparent. They reflect light. That When you shine light on them, you get like rainbow action coming out of them. This is so cool. God, you made your city all the more beautiful because now if ever light would be shown, and we'll touch that later, it's going to create all new hues and colors and opportunity. And all of the stones of the foundations, all 12 of them, they're of this category of stone. How cool is that? All right. This just adds to the beauty. Also, these foundation stones have the names of people on them. Now, what's interesting to me, Revelation 21, 14, top of page 5, the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were written the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. This is hilarious to me. Why? Because, presumably, these names... Now, it could be that these names were written in recent times when John has this encounter, but it seems to me that this, the, the way that we're supposed to read this is these foundations have had the names of the of the uh of the apostles of the lamb written on them potentially since the conception of the the city which is long time before there would ever be apostles and so you just you just marvel and go wow if it is the case that these names were written later because maybe that's the case to me that's equally as awesome because a minute ago, John the Apostle wasn't written on floor six. And now all of a sudden, John the Apostle is inscribed up there. And you just know John's like, oh my gosh, this is the most, I got a whole foundation named after me. Either way, whether they were there from the beginning or they're inscribed, either one of those storylines is mind-blowing in my mind. Next. The city of light. Now we know this, but think about this with relationship to these these uh, stones and the way that they reflect light. Just imagine like a really high-powered light shining on a giant diamond, which is placed right next to a giant ruby, which is placed next to a giant pick a you know great colorful awesome gem, and this bright light is shining on these things and reflecting all this. I mean, I just think I'm gonna need my sunglasses. This is just going to be so intense and beautiful and reflect the glory of God in crazy ways. The lamb in heaven is the source of life, a uh, source of light as well as life. Revelation 21, 23, the city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it. For the glory of God gives it light and the lamb is its lamp. 
Jesus is the lamp inside of it, as well as the glory of God is illuminating the city. So this city has no lack of light. In fact, the light that it has is better than any sun. His splendor was like the sunrise. Rays flashed from his hands where his power was hidden. I just want to give you the, the splendor of God being likened to the sun rising. That sort of brilliance and brightness. But then it's brilliance like a jewel. Look at this. Revelation 21, 11. It's shown with the glory of God and its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel. So now it's not just that the light is bright, that the light is like a sun. It's that the light itself, it's shown with the glory of God and the brilliance of this city, the city itself by this light is like a precious jewel. It is a precious jewel. You just imagine John and even the angels as they're given this, this language are really struggling for human words here. To be able to write, go, it's, it's a giant jewel of jewels. It's a city of jewels. And the, and the glory of God's like a jewel. It's just pretty. It's really, really great. You want to be here. Don't go to hell. Bad plan. You want to come to this city. It's awesome. The city itself. Now think about this. This is crazy. This city lit up like a giant diamond. Imagine this. The biggest diamond ring you've ever seen on somebody's finger. If somehow there was a sun inside of the gem and it's just, it's just radiating brilliance. That is a fair picture of what we're talking about when we say heaven during the millennial period. Okay. The city itself illuminates the earth. Oh my gosh. Look at this. Isaiah 24. The moon will be abashed, the sun ashamed, for the Lord Almighty will reign on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem and before its elders gloriously. Why would the moon or the sun be ashamed? Why would they be abashed? Because the light of God is so much brighter than the sun and we just can't even fathom how that works and we don't all die. How do we not become crispy critters in the midst of that environment, of that brilliance and wattage? I don't know. These are mysteries I know not of. Isaiah 60, arise, shine, for your light has come and the glory of the Lord rises upon you. See, darkness covers the earth and thick darkness is over its people, but the Lord rises upon you and his glory appears over you. Nations will come to your light and kings to the brightness of your dawn. Brightness, glory in Jerusalem. This, this just unbelievable picture. The new Jerusalem acts as the sun. Isaiah 60, the sun will be no more, uh, the sun will no more be your light by day, nor will the brightness of the moon shine on you, for the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your God will be your glory. Your sun will never set again, and your moon will never wane no more. The Lord will be your everlasting light, and your days of sorrow will end. That doesn't say that the moon and the sun will disappear. It says their light won't touch Jerusalem because the light that's closer and brighter will be so much brighter that the sun and the moon are kind of like, that's really kind of old news. You into the moon? Not anymore. Why? I mean, have you seen the city? Like right there. What about the sun? What's that? 
And it's like, we don't need one. We've got the city of God right there. It's really incredible. All right, moving on to the immenseness of the city. I want you to do your best to try to allow the math here to touch your spirit. We know the exact measurements of this city. It's unbelievable that God would share that information with us. We don't know how tall the living creatures are. Doesn't say. We don't know how wide the throne of God is. We don't know how many feet across is it in, in heaven. We don't know. We know the exact dimensions of God's city because he wants us to know the exact dimensions of God's city. And I would just say this. I, I would just, I would encourage you. Before anybody tries to interpret the city of heaven to be this or this or this, pay attention to the intentionality of detail that is given to draw our attention to exact measurements. Before we would try to make it something or do something with it, just look at the measure of attentiveness of detail we are given. The angel who talked with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city, its gates and its walls. Why? Why does this angel have the, because God wants the church to know significant details about this city, its dimensions, its shape, all that kind of stuff. He wants us to know them, and we know its shape. Look at Revelation 21, 16. The city was laid out like a square, but it's not a square because it says it's laid out like a square as long as it was wide. And then it also says as high, as long as it, and high as it was. So the, the same dimensions. So it's, we're given this like, it's a square, don't lose the square thing. You need to remember the square thing. It's not just a city. It's a city that's got parameters, that's got, no city in the earth is laid out as strategically as heaven is. This city was laid out, it's boundaries. That's the edge of heaven. Don't build beyond that. That's the edge of the city, okay? We know it's size. He measured the city with a rod and found it to be 12,000 stadia in length and as wide and high as it is long. So pay attention to this. We are told it's a square. Then we're told it's a square that's the same height as it is long as it is wide. So the most natural uh, uh, take on that, the most, th the way that the passage reads in its most natural presentation is it's a cube. Now there are others that think other things and I am not saying that it couldn't possibly be those other things, but I am saying the way the passage reads, we're intended to just take it at its plain sense meaning. It's 12,000 stadia, which equals 14. Uh, 100 miles. It's 1,400 miles by 1,400 miles by 1,400 miles by 1,400 miles. 1,400 miles. As long as it was high. And remember, it's a square. The city is laid out like a square. That term, the city is laid out like a square. That's an important detail. Whatever our interpretation is of what it looks like and how it whatever's, the city is laid out like a square. As wide as it is high and it's 1,400 miles. That landmass is ginormous. 1,400 miles by 1,400 miles, just so you know, that's the equivalent of Mexico to Canada and the Mississippi River to the Pacific. That's about. 
If you did the 14, I mean, you'd fudge the numbers a little bit, but that's about 14 by 14. If you were looking at what is 1,400 miles by 1,400 miles, make a square, what does that look like? This city is pretty darn large. Mexico to Canada, Mississippi to Pacific. That is a really big 1,400-mile thing. That's nearly, not quite, nearly 2 million square miles. Whoa. (laughs) That is... A lot of dirt. That is a tremendous amount of dirt. Oh, yeah, but don't forget, there's 12 foundations. Foundation one, foundation two, three, four. And the way that John sees these foundations is he's outside the city. He's seeing the city wall. That's the passage that we see in Revelation 21. He's seeing foundations. He's seeing floors. He's seeing levels. He says foundations, and each foundation was a different stone. And each foundation have a different name of, a la- of one of the apostles on it. Twelve stories of two million square miles. Whoa. <laughs> that is really intense. Just to do a little bit of math, 1,400 miles is really, really tall. 1,400 miles, just so you know, if it's a cube, which I think it is, if it's a cube, that cube barely fits inside of the moon. So if you were trying to put a square peg in a round moon, you'd, you would barely fit in there. You could get it in there, but barely. So you're talking about a city the size of the moon squared off. Whoa, <laughs> that's really intense. To give you another idea, this concept of levels or floors, the 12 foundations, there's 115 miles between each one. That's over twice the distance from here to outer space. So you could go from here to outer space twice and add a little, and that's the difference between foundation one and foundation two, if they're equidistant. It doesn't say that they are. It, I mean, that's a thought that they are. I think they are. But if they are, you got about 115 miles between base level floor one and the roof, floor two. And 115 miles from that to floor three. And 150 miles, you have entire atmospheres. You have enti- this is helpful for mailing addresses, okay? Where do you live? Uh, Jasper Floor, uh, you know, District 7. I mean, there's, there's going to, you know, street, da-da-da. I mean, there's going to be, all- find me. Oh, man, find me. This is going to be a really difficult thing, finding your house in glory, okay? And so I think that this gives so much room for floor distinction, So much room for, think about the way that God made the nations different on purpose. He's got the nations different, and that concept came from God. You know, flavor and and culture and language and customs and geography and topography, all these things are different in the nations. What if the 12 floors are different on purpose as well? We know that they're at least different by foundational floor color. Because the foundations are different colors. They're different stones that reflect light. These are just unbelievable ideas. So let's break up into groups and talk about them. All right, Luke, how many groups do we have tonight? Four groups of six. So who are my group leaders tonight? John, you're over here. That's great. Caitlin, stay there. Luke, if you don't mind, move this way. Andy's in the back. Four groups of six. Uh, Break up into groups. Uh, Have yourself... All right, we're going to go ahead and transition to our time of Q&A. 
and I'll repeat the questions so that we can get them uh, recorded. So uh, we'll go ahead and uh, start back there with you guys, Andy. All right. But, but is that really connected? I mean, wouldn't those two things be separate? Or are you just saying that the river life's only on one floor? Yeah. Yeah. So not theme. The theme part isn't really the question. It's... All right. So, Luke. Uh... I don't understand the question. For the lazy river. Uh, I'm going to answer the question I wish you asked. So the question I wished you asked is, does the river of the water of life go through all 12 floors? Yes. Uh, does that serve as some form of transportation? Yes. Could you potentially tube down that river? Sure. Would your experience change per floor? Yes. So I am going to pretend that's what you asked. Because I know not what you said. Okay, um, John, over here. So we were just thinking about because of the levels of those floors. That was really high. Yeah, it's really high. So we were thinking... Like, the Lazy River's got waterfalls galore. Yeah. Okay. Okay, I think you should. Wow, this this session really tripped y'all up. Uh, I'm gonna answer the question I wish you asked. <laughs> as soon as I figure out what that is, does space still exist? <laughs> yes. Will the New Jerusalem? Touch space. Yes. I think that if the question is related to space exploration, I don't think that's going to have anything necessarily to do with the floors because there's still a whole lot of outer space out there, like all of it, that the space between, I'm sure there'll be things happening in those 115-mile gaps, but I don't think that's actually going to be space exploration. I think... I think there'll be, maybe, maybe there'll be rockets launched from the top of the top. Save energy because then it doesn't have to get through the stratosphere. Okay. Okay, so all of you who hear this later, pretend you heard a question, pretend it got answered, and it was great. Caitlin, please bring us back down to earth. Well, excellent question. So the question related to the location of the throne room in the 12 uh, foundation proximity, um, and the, the question was, where is it? And then a clue was given related to the um, Moses encounter uh, of the, uh, the sapphire... Uh, you know, when, when Moses is seeing the Lord, it says that, you know, that the, the, the sea before him or, or the, the pavement underneath his feet was like sapphire. Does that mean that the throne is on the second floor? Because according to the, here are the 12 foundations. The first was this, the second was sapphire. Uh, is that what's being said? Okay. I'd like to unpack this a little bit because I think there's a lot of ways that you could uh, look at this. Um, 
I could be wrong, and, uh, and if I am, if somebody knows the passage in, in Exodus well enough to be able to speak to it, um, I can't recall that it said the throne was visible in that Exodus passage. Um, it says feet. So God has feet, meaning God walks around. So it makes sense that, Jesus, that God would go on all 12 of his floors, okay? So does it, does it mean that when we see his feet um, on the second floor, Sapphire, that that's where his throne is at? Possibly, but I don't think that we could definitely draw a, a, a clear, uh, concise inference from the, from the Exodus passage without a, uh, a statement about the throne's location being in that vision, okay? Uh, so, because throne room and the place of God's feet don't nece- necessarily mean that it's that location, okay? Now, let me just give you my two thoughts on uh, where I think the most reasonable place for the throne room would be uh, from a reflective standpoint, from an access standpoint. I think one of the things that's a focal point uh, that it, I recognize I'm drawing an inference, so I'm not saying this is that, I'm giving you an inference. The lamb's uh, uh, central location in the throne room. The, the concept of in the center of all this activity was the lamb. I think that it makes sense that in the center of all this activity of heaven is the throne room. And so either that the, the throne room is in the center, as in like what the sixth floor, whatever that would be there in the middle, um, for access for everybody, or even from the standpoint of the, uh, the reflectiveness of the light so that there's an equal reflection across the whole city that it would be centrally located. That's one thought. Next thought would be that it's actually on the ground level and that the reason for that would be that the light is shining up in all of the, it's hitting all the floors, but it's also for the sake of during the millennial period, access to the earth without having to go through floors of the new Jerusalem in order to be able to touch the access point. So we'll touch on it here in a future session, this concept of the corridor of glory, which is a a concept I don't want to get into right now, but it defines the way that earth, the throne room on earth, because Jesus is going to have a throne room on earth and the throne room in heaven, the way that there's an interconnectivity that while it's two distinct locations it's one reality that is uh, overlapped. And the, the activities that are occurring before the throne room in heaven and Jesus is on that throne and the activities that are occurring on the earth and it's Jesus on the throne, that it's, it's one reality and that there being some sort of, not just it's the same reality and you magically appear and genie blink, you're in, in the other area, but that there's some level of a conduit which stuff goes through that portal somehow. We'll touch on it in a later session. I think it makes the most sense that it's on the first floor or rather on the base level. Uh, but then you could also say maybe it's on the highest, like a light in a room. So there's a bunch of different theories. I don't know the answer. Um, but if, if you could make the case that the second uh, floor is um, sapphire and we could get any reason to believe that the, the, the father was on the throne in that setting, then maybe it's the second floor. Maybe it's first, maybe it's the middle, maybe it's the top. I guess we'll find out when we get there. But excellent question with Bible-backing 
uh, uh, theory behind it. So whenever we've got ideas, you don't want them to be harebrained. You want them to be Bible-related. So, so you, you want to base it off of... Uh, that wasn't a shot. That was... Uh, that, no, it really wasn't. Uh, but you, you, want your, you want your Bible ideas... Uh, and the developing theology that you're working on to be also based on Bible uh, verses, Bible concepts, and uh, Bible uh, details so that we don't wind up with just ideas, but we wind up with, I think this because of this verse. And I could be wrong, but I think this because of this verse, not just because I think things. Um, So great, excellent. Uh, Yeah, Luke. Worship team, you can come on up. Excellent question. Okay, so heaven has got concrete realities to it. The saints that are in heaven right now don't have a resurrected body. They're a disembodied spirit. Before Jesus came to the earth, we don't exactly know all of what that looked, felt, smelt like. But Jesus did not yet have a resurrected body because he had not yet become man on earth. So, So the question then is, do you need a resurrected body to fully experience to the fullness the environment of heaven? I think absolutely, or, or else we wouldn't need one. Uh, we wouldn't be given that resurrected body. Every time the Lord gives us something, it's because we need it, because it's part of our experience. It's part of what he wants us to be able to utilize. It's, it's part of the human experience. It's part of our progression. It's part of all of that. So I think the, the idea of a, the fullest experience of heaven, I think, does require that resurrected body. But I also think that right now, if you're a, a saint in heaven, so any of our you know, pious relatives that have gone to be on with the Lord and, and they're there now, while they are aching for the day, they're looking for the day of their blessed hope just like we are. The day of their blessed hope wasn't the day they died and went to be with Jesus. The day of their blessed hope is the same day as our blessed hope. And that is when Jesus comes back and we get resurrected bodies. So they're in heaven now awaiting the, their blessed hope, awaiting the upgrade of the resurrected body. But I don't think that they're like having bad days. They're in heaven their experience is real, their experience is good, but their experience is incomplete because when they get a resurrected body, they will be able to far more fully experience uh, both the environment of heaven and the environment of earth. So, great question. Okay, good. This is, these are good things. This is, we're thinking here. We're, we're using our knowledge. This concludes this teaching from the prayer room. For more resources, please visit our website at tprdfw.com. Thank you. Thank you.